So, you know, if you're the kind of person who thinks, ooh, a series, I don't know, that could go on for a while. I don't know if I want to be in the same book for a long time. We should be done before Christmas, so. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's really not a book. It's a letter, um, or as you uh, might have heard it called more traditionally, an epistle. Uh, Most of what we call the New Testament is a collection of letters that was written from the church leaders to the early Christian churches in various locations. Uh, And this particular letter was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in, here we go, in this place, which I looked up online, like, how do you actually say this? And uh, it's funny, because they actually have recordings. You push the WAV files and everything, and you hear people saying it, and they're they're different. (laughs) So some people say uh, Kalasi, and some people say Kalasai, and I like Kalasi, because I think it's a little easier to say, so that's the way I'm going to pronounce it. Um, But just so we can get our bearings here, uh, Kalasi is on the right side of this map, right under Galatia in Asia Minor. Uh, which is modern-day Turkey. And it's believed to have been written by Paul when he was under house arrest in Rome, which you can see is on the left side of that map, way in the corner. Uh, So this letter had to travel a pretty substantial distance in the ancient world. I believe it's about 1,300 miles. And, of course, this is in the days before cars or planes, so you can really get a sense of how far the church had spread at this point. So this letter was written around 60 A.D., so this is less than 30 years after Jesus' resurrection. Uh, For perspective, that's roughly the same amount of time as between now and the release of uh, U2's Joshua Tree album. If that means something to you, I'm glad. If not, I apologize. (laughs) So uh, Paul is under house arrest in Rome for preaching Christ, which means he's confined to this one tiny area. Uh, but he is allowed to have visitors. So he's not, you know, in a tiny cell somewhere, but he, he is allowed to see people. And one person who pays him a visit is this guy named Epiphras. And Epiphras is the man who started the church in Colossae. So Epiphras comes and he gives Paul a report on the Colossian church. And he says, well, things are going pretty well, but there are a few problems. And the main problem is essentially that the people are starting to drift away from the message that they originally heard and accepted. And so Paul writes this letter to try and correct that drift. Now, I want to talk a little about drift. Uh, there's this tendency um, in, in, that exists in the church, and I think in every one of us, for us to drift, to drift from the truth. And uh, last week during Easter, I talked about how Scripture says that the whole of creation is in bondage to decay. Uh, In other words, unless some effort is expended by someone, uh, there's this natural tendency for things to move towards disorder and disintegration. Uh, We know this. We can see it. We experience it every day, right? Uh, If you don't clean your house, it becomes a mess. If you don't change the oil in your car, the engine burns up. If you never work out, your body gets out of shape. And this principle of decay seems to apply even to our faith. If we never remind ourselves of certain truths, if we don't pray, if we don't read the Bible, if we don't meet in community like this, over time, we drift. Uh, One of my favorite hymns, Come Now Fount of Every Blessing, expresses this. It says, Prone to wander, oh I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, 
Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. In other words, God, I know I have a natural tendency to drift. Help. Please don't let me fall away. And often this drift is so subtle and slow that we don't recognize it. It's more like continental drift than like an earthquake. Um, You know, every year the plates that the continents are on, they move a little bit. I've heard that the Pacific plate is moving northwest at a rate about three to four inches a year, which doesn't sound like much, but over time, that drift happens steadily enough, long enough, that can create mountains, so I've heard. So, So drifting is dangerous. And so Paul recognizes this drift taking place in the Colossian church, and he reminds them of some essential truths in order to correct that drift. And the place where he starts is by reminding them of who Jesus is. So if we want our spiritual muscles to keep from getting flabby, the truth about who Jesus is is something we need to be reminded of. Especially since so many of the people we encounter on a regular basis have a very different conception of who Jesus is than the one Paul gives us. I doubt any of us here need proof of that, Uh, but I found this YouTube video of a guy in South Florida going around on the street and just asking people, who is Jesus? And I thought it would be fun to juxtapose it with the passage that we're about to read. Um, So let's hear what they had to say. Okay, so some interesting responses there. I like that guy who's like, see, now you want to start trouble. (laughs) So now, in contrast, let's hear what Paul has to say. So this is chapter 1, starting in verse 15, Colossians 1.15. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. All right, so there's definitely some overlap there with the video we just watched, but no one had an answer that was quite like that. And this afternoon, what I'd like to do is just spend some time in those verses, just taking in what Paul is saying about who Jesus is. Because again, what he's saying here is a critical foundation to every church community. It's one of the truths that we have to be reminded of in order to keep from drifting. So the first thing that he says is that Christ is the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God. Now that sounds a little paradoxical, doesn't it? To say that God is invisible, but at the same time to say he's been made visible. And what Paul means is not that Christ has finally revealed that God has two eyes and a nose and a mouth and walks upright. What he means is that Christ makes clear to us what God is like. Christ shows us the character and nature of God. And I want us to notice that Paul says that Christ is the image, right? not a image. And this point will become more clear as we move through the passage. But from the first line, we can see that Jesus is not one image among a bunch of 
um, equally valid images, but he is the image. And because he's the image, nothing else can give us a better idea of what the invisible God is like than Jesus. No other, metaphorically speaking, no, no other photo is going to do a better job than this one. Uh, not any other religious leader, not any other human philosophy, not any other prophet, not even the Old Testament scriptures. Um, don't misunderstand me. The Old Testament scriptures are essential in order to help us to understand who Jesus is. We should know them. We should study them. We should love them. Uh, but taken by themselves, we have to recognize that the image of God we're left with, if we're only looking at the Old Testament, is a little fuzzy. Uh, they're not enough because the image of the invisible God has not yet been revealed. We need Jesus in order for that image to come into focus and in order for the invisible God to be made visible. Now, in the world we live in today, it can sound very narrow, very intolerant, even unintelligent, uh, to claim that Jesus is the image of God rather than just a image. Remember that woman in the video who said, well, Jesus is a spiritual leader. He's one of the spiritual leaders that I learned from. It's a very safe, common answer to the question of who Jesus is for people today. He's one of many. And, of course, he is one of many spiritual leaders that have existed. But what Paul is saying is that he is the only accurate and complete image of the invisible God. And that's the idea that can be hard for people to accept. Now, if you're someone who's having trouble accepting that idea, uh, there's a couple things I'd like to say. So the first thing is this. The first is that to say that Jesus is the image of God is not to say that other religions never get anything right. Okay? If you think you've noticed elements of other religions that might seem good or beautiful, I'm not trying to say, and Paul's not trying to say, that you're definitely wrong to recognize any goodness or beauty in those places. But what scripture tells us is that nothing else can provide us with an image of God that is more accurate or complete than Jesus Christ. And that's why we believe that looking at any other place to understand God is dangerous. Because the picture that it's going to provide will be incomplete at best. right? Or it could be false and destructive at worst. So saying that Jesus is the image of God doesn't force you to reject every single aspect of every faith that you encounter other than your own. But it just forces you to reject, forces you to recognize that all other faiths fall short of the picture of God that we have in Jesus. So that's one thing. The second thing I want you to recognize if you're having trouble is that if you're bothered by the idea that Jesus is the image, consider what the image is. The image of God that we have in Jesus is, as we're going to get to later in this passage, one of self-giving, reconciling love. So it might seem narrow to say that there's only one perfect image of who God is, but when we consider that that image is one of self-giving, reconciling love, I think that's something worth being narrow-minded about. So he's the image of the invisible God, and next we're told that he's the firstborn over all creation. Now, when we hear the word firstborn, we think of a child, right, who goes from non-existence to conception and then to being born to parents who have preceded that child. And uh, if you've ever encountered the Jehovah's Witnesses, that's what they say this verse is saying about Jesus, uh, that Christ at some point did not exist and then God created him. But it's important for us to understand that that is not what Paul is saying here. In fact, if we look ahead a little ways, we can see that this passage is emphasizing that Jesus is not created, but the creator 
of everything. So why does Paul call him firstborn? Sounds like a weird way to describe him if he's not created, right? Well, the reason is because firstborn is not a literal description. It's actually a title that designates authority. It's like saying he's the king over all creation. Now you might say, well, how do we know this? Where's the proof? Well, there are other places in the Bible where we can see clearly that the term firstborn is being used as a title. So one example is uh, Psalm 89, 27, where God says, I will appoint David my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. If you know the story of David, you know that he's not literally the firstborn. He's actually the lastborn in his family. Um, But what God is saying is that he's going to give David supremacy. He's going to give him authority. So it's being used as a title of authority. In the same way, Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, not because he is literally a firstborn being, as in a being that did not exist and then did, but because he has authority. Okay, so continuing on, Paul says, For by him all things were created. So here's where Jesus' status as God becomes very clear. Because if all things were created by Jesus then that means nothing created him. Because nothing preceded him, which could have created him. And if nothing created Jesus, but he created everything, then that makes him God. That's the definition of God, right? The uncreated creator. And just in case there's any doubt, Paul makes it clear that Jesus really has created everything. He continues on. Because everything includes all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. Now, I want us to notice especially this phrase, visible and invisible. It's interesting to me because it reminds us that creation doesn't just include what we can see and detect with our senses. It includes invisible stuff. Uh, Scripture tells us that that angels are a real part of creation and that they're typically not detectable to us. Um, It talks about angels that are obedient to God and angels that are disobedient to God, more commonly known as demons. And we're told that what goes on with these invisible created beings does have an impact on the visible world that we're a part of. Now, for some people, that can sound really out there, sound a little crazy. But, uh, you know, let's not forget that we live in a, in a time where brilliant physicists talk about things like other dimensions and multiverses and stuff like that. So the idea of unseen realms that exist alongside our own realm might not be as out there as some people would think. In fact, uh, science is always suggesting that there's more to reality than what is immediately apparent to us. Uh, for example, you know, take the electromagnetic spectrum, right? It's a pretty big spectrum, but the part of it that's visible to our eyes is just this tiny little band in the center there of visible light, Roy G. Biv. But then on you know, the left side, you've got gamma rays and x-rays, and then on the right side, microwaves, radio waves. You, you can't see that stuff. But we know that it, it exists. And uh, it's just one example of how reality is more than we tend to see and detect on a regular basis. And what Paul is saying is that uh, whether... It's invisible or not, whether we're aware of it or not, Jesus created it all. If there are other dimensions, Jesus made them, and he has authority over them. If there are multiple universes, which I'm kind of doubtful of personally, but if there are, Jesus is Lord of all those other universes. If there are 
alien beings. Uh, it doesn't matter if they look like E.T. or those creepy gray guys with the big eyes. Ultimately, Jesus created them. He has authority over them because he's the creator of all things. And not only did Jesus create, create all things, but Paul tells us that he also sustains all things. He says, in him, all things hold together. Um, excuse me. This is actually a really, a really significant thing in my mind because a lot of the time when we think about God's involvement with the world, we think that God created the world and then he kind of was hands-on in the very beginning and then he just kind of walked away and maybe he occasionally intervenes to do a miracle or something like that, but most of the time it's like he just kind of wound things up and then he let it go. But that's not, that's not the picture of God's involvement with the world that Scripture gives us. Uh, the, the picture that we get from Scripture is that actually the only thing that keeps creation from just kind of sliding into non-existence is the continual actual, active involvement of God's hand upholding the whole thing, sustaining the creation moment by moment. Um, when we observe creation, we see it holding together, right? And we give names to the forces that hold it together, names like gravity and subatomic particle charges and that sort of thing. And there's nothing wrong with, with doing that, putting those sorts of labels on it. Um, but no matter what we call these forces that bind reality together, ultimately, Paul is going to say that these forces are the consequence of the will of God. And to put it more specifically, of Christ, who is holding all things together. So Jesus is the perfect picture of God. He's the king of all creation. He's the one who created all things, whether you can see them or not. He's more powerful than any ruler or authority. And it is his will that causes all of creation to hold together, moment by moment. And then he adds, which at this point seems like a no-brainer, and he's the head of the church. <laughs> uh, the church was created by Jesus, it exists for Jesus, and it's sustained by Jesus. And it's really important that we don't lose sight of this, because if the church ever stops being about Jesus, then it has just totally lost touch with reality. And uh, as any mental health specialist will tell you, that is not a good state to be in. So I hope we've gotten a bit of a sense of how supreme Jesus is. He's the source and reason for the world. He's not just one spiritual leader among many. Jesus is the supreme king of all. This is the foundational truth that we need to keep in mind in order to keep from drifting. But that's not all we need to be reminded of. Because the fact that Jesus is the supreme king, uh, the fact that he's the supreme king is not the only thing that Paul emphasizes. He also emphasizes that Jesus is the reconciling, peacemaking king. He says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And what I want us to realize right now is just how beautiful these words are in light of everything else that Paul just said. Okay, Because Paul's just finished exalting Jesus to the highest possible level. You can't get any higher than what he's just said. He's the uncreated creator, the authority over every conceivable power, the source and reason for everything. And yet, what is he all about? 
He's about reconciling all things in creation to himself. He's about making peace. You know, I've noticed that sometimes in the church, we try to offer comfort or hope by saying things like, God is in control. God is sovereign. So relax. But the idea that God is in control is not enough on its own to bring hope or comfort. It's not, because we can talk about God's power all we want, but if we haven't talked about God's character, it's not really going to help. If I went to a foreign country and I, I walked through the borders and someone told me, this country is run by a king who's very powerful. He's got all authority. He can issue a command, and no matter what it is, it's done. None of those statements are going to be very reassuring or comforting or encouraging to me at all because none of them say anything about the king's attitude toward me or towards his subjects. If the king is like Hitler, his power is very bad news. Unless I know that the king actually wants what's best for me, unless I know that the king is truly a good king, then knowing about his power isn't going to help. And this is why the gospel of Jesus is such good news. Because it doesn't just say Jesus is the supreme king of all. It also says Jesus is the reconciling, peacemaking king. Jesus is the all-powerful king who cares so much about you that he shed his blood on the cross to save you and gave up his earthly life for you. So Jesus is the supreme king, and he's also the reconciling king. The supreme king and the reconciling king. And both of these are core truths that we must not drift from. There's one final thing, though, that I want us to recognize today. And that is that there is a connection between us recognizing Jesus as supreme and us experiencing the reconciliation that he desires for us. Uh, That might not be clear just from the passage that we looked at, but it is clear in other places. Romans 10.9 says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's a connection between acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord and the experience of salvation. And so this afternoon, I want to encourage you, if you've never recognized Jesus as supreme, to consider doing that. In a moment, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to offer a prayer on your behalf. Uh, And if that prayer resonates with you and you recognize Jesus as supreme for the first time, uh, I would love for you to talk to me or one of the prayer ministers to let us know. Uh, We would love to know and and to help you in your next steps of faith from there. So, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are both supreme and reconciling. And that Jesus, who is your perfect image, has revealed that to us. God, right now, if there's anyone in this room who's never recognized you as supreme, I want to offer a prayer on their behalf. Lord, I acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Lord of all, and I will look to him in order to understand what you are like. Not only do I accept that Jesus is powerful, but also that he is a reconciling peacemaker and that he shed his blood on the cross in order to save me from my sin. I receive the gift of salvation that you are offering. Help my life to reflect the truth that Jesus is Lord. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be at work in anyone who may have prayed that 
for the first time. I ask that you would grant them understanding and a faith that grows and deepens. And I pray for all of us that we would grow and not drift from the truth, that the truth that Jesus is the supreme and reconciling king would direct each one of our steps and give us joy and peace and strength all of our days. In Jesus' name, amen.